Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I can tell you everything about Main Man. Why and what and how and whether it was exciting or not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A very long, wonderful adventure. Hello, welcome to episode seven in our series that delves into the archives of Main Man, the company synonymous with the hedonistic excesses of the early 70s. And Angie just went and just started physically attacking the cops, pushing them out of the way so the kids could get down there for the finale of the show. It was all show business. She had to have those kids down there. That was part of the show. And so the cops just, next thing I knew, I was sitting in that seat. I was staying out of it. I was in like the eighth row and I was sitting there and I saw Angie's legs up in the air as she was being carried upside down by like these six uniformed cops. Main Man was a rights management organization formed by entrepreneur and impresario Tony DeFries that helped to develop the careers of artists including David Bowie, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, Mop the Hoople, John Mellencamp, and Iggy Pop. The biggest positive influence on us here were really the Mark Bolan records that were being made at the time. Those were fine records. And the first Led Zeppelin record, uh, with communication breakdown and a whole lot of love on it was around and exile on Main Street. Today, DeFries describes in detail the communications he had with various music business executives in 1970 in order to extricate David from his existing arrangements so he could negotiate better deals that would be more financially and artistically rewarding. Okay, 50 years ago, 1970, when I met David Robert Jones, David Bowie. Still David, not yet Bowie. And let me skip now to May 71. I'm looking at a cable. Interestingly enough, it's sent via RCA in New York. It's addressed to me, the Warwick Hotel in New York, and it says will give David Bowie complete release and return all masters and related artwork to you and or Bowie for $18,000. Contact me at home over weekend, 1D28135, or by Monday at Chicago office. Erwin H. Steinberg, Mercury Records. And this says Mercury Records, CGO. Erwin Steinberg was the founder and at that point probably the majority shareholder of Mercury Records and they had signed Bowie earlier in 1968 I suspect and we were at the end this is the moment when I prized David loose from Mercury and Bowie begins And if we look back into these same chronologies, there's a year of correspondence, slightly less, up until this time, starting when I meet David early in 1970, and then beginning a dialogue with Mercury, with Steinberg, with other Mercury folk, and eventually ending up in a visit 
by Steinberg and Robin McBride, who is head of A&R, to London to meet with me. And at that meeting, we talked about ways in which they might release Boeing, although only a few months earlier they'd said they would never release him. But ultimately, in that conversation, Irwin made the suggestion that they'd spent so much money on David that they couldn't release him unless they were to recover. And I said, well, how much have you spent? And he gave me a number. And I said, I will pay it back if you will give me the masters, the recordings, and all the material, and release David from his contract. And because he'd actually identified the number and indicated that he would, Irwin's then faced with the problem of having to say yes, and he did say yes. Now, if we go to the beginning of this marvellous chain of correspondence and we look at how it began, we see that in June of 1970, there's a long, complicated mail. Remember, this is all... Back then, there were no emails, it was all letters. This is a letter from a London firm of solicitors. It's addressed to Steinberg himself, and it details very specifically how this law firm understand, having read the contract between Bowie and Mercury, that they are in breach, and that the breaches they've committed which are detailed in this long mail, are such that the contract has been repudiated. And the position that Bowie is taking is that he has no obligations to Mercury, he's no longer under contract, he's free to sign elsewhere. The remarkable thing about this, the writer of this letter is me. And in June 1970, I'm only 26 years old. David's probably 23 or thereabouts. I've never qualified as a lawyer or any form of legal professional. Everything I've learned and which is contained in this wonderful bit of letter writing is based on experience. I've been working in law offices since I was 16. I left school when I was 15 to run my parents' business because they had failing health. And at 16, I started working in the city for a law firm as a office boy, gopher, somebody who serves process, gets documents stamped, takes care of stuff, stuff people actually don't really want to do. So one marvellous occasion I recall is I had to serve a legal proceeding on a circus performer who was a strong man and had a violent temper. And everyone was horrified at the idea that if you actually gave this person some kind of a writ, he was probably going to be extremely upset and react really badly. But he performed on stage in different theatres around the country as part of a 
act. And at the end of his act, he always took a bow and outstretched both arms. So I went to a few of these shows and managed to get myself backstage at one of them. And at the close of the show, as he stretched out his arms to the audience, I slipped the proceedings into his outstretched hand, said you have been served, and made a speedy exit. (laughs) Anyway, that's the sort of thing that you have to do if you're in the business of serving people with proceedings. But I got more sophisticated, obviously, and by... June 1970, I'd been at it for about 10 years. I was in a remarkable position, actually, because I was the only consulting, managing clerk, what we call a legal executive or a paralegal today, in England, who worked for various different law firms on a purely consulting basis, to manage different types of litigation problems. And I'd already, before this June letter, had some considerable success in securing the release of songwriters from contracts that were unreasonable or unfair, in getting record producers out of the difficulties that they'd enmeshed themselves in when contracting for money to make records and agreeing to pay everybody 50%. Obviously, you can't pay more than one person 50% of your record income unless it's specific to a record. But nobody wrote that down at the time. And many of these contracts were considered unenforceable by me. And that, of course, was Mickey Most. Mickey Most was the subject of that lawsuit. And by the time I'd reached this moment with Mercury, I had a formidable reputation as somebody who could get contracts to go away, be reversed, be improved, and generally smooth out the difficulties that creative folk, not just record producers and songwriters, but also photographers and designers and illustrators, encountered in their creative endeavours. And that was how I began with David. So just to go back into this tale of trouble, how do we get past this first mail... We had an attorney in New York called Norman Kurtz and he started writing letters to Mercury as well. And so in August of 1970, we had a letter from a law firm in Chicago. And this is Mr. Levin of Levin and Berger. He's the senior partner. And he's writing to Mr. Kurtz saying, the London firm of Godfrey Davis and Bat has been in communication with our client and with us. It seems that neither we nor our client should be subject to having to deal with two sets of attorneys in different locations and request that you or the Godfrey firm be designated as sole counsel for Mr. Bowie in current matters relating to our client. In short, we don't want to have to deal with a law firm in London and another law firm in New York. And remember, 
at this time it wasn't apparently clear to the law firms involved that I was not just David's new manager but also his new lawyer. That was an interesting element. At this same time, I needed to get David a publisher. And he also needed to be funded so that he could start changing from David to Bowie. And this deconstruction of David meant that we needed a new group of people. And at the time, Chrysalis was a company that had been started by Chris Wright and Terry Ellis, both of whom I knew, and they were not much older than me, actually, and quite interested in taking on David. So we made a joint publishing arrangement where we would have a publishing company that belonged to David and myself on the one hand and Chrysalis on the other hand, and they would have administration and so on. And in order to get that underway, we had to work with their lawyers in London and also let them know the status of Boeing and Mercury. And so in August of 1970, we give their lawyers a complete rundown of what we've done with Mercury. And this is their response. Thank you for your letter with its enclosures. I must say on first reading, it's a fairly hopeless situation. And the way out is the way you've already adopted. Namely, making such a nuisance of yourselves that they will be glad to see the back of you. (laughs) So that was the opinion of a partner in a law firm working for Chrysalis at that point in time. Then we find another, again, a cable from Steinberg. This one, again, in August of 1970, addressed to me in Cavendish Square at my Godfrey Davis and Bat law firm. And it says, understand you're negotiating for David Bowie with other record companies. We have an exclusive contract with David Bowie. Any attempt to breach the same will result in appropriate legal action. And there is Steinberg in 1970, August. And as I said earlier, just a few months later, in May of 71, we've agreed that Mercury will let Bowie go. Tony DeFries explaining in detail how he negotiated for David to conclude his existing deals and move forward with plans that would better suit his ambition. All the paperwork from the Main Man archive that Tony was discussing is part of an ever-growing collection of memorabilia, a lot of it never seen before, that we are adding to the Main Man website each week a fantastic record of a very exciting period in rock history. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. In the next episode, Tony talks about David meeting and recruiting guitarist Mick Ronson in February 1970, and the incredibly important role that Rono played in expanding the sound of David's music at the time, particularly on the songs they recorded that would be included on the album The Man Who Sold the World. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.